chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. The temptation of Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendour, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. There are three things that I'd like for us to um, closely reflect on in this passage today. Three things that are evident and clear in these verses, but also three things that we see consistently throughout Scripture. And those three things that we will reflect on today are our God's sovereignty, how Satan tempts, and thirdly, we'll sit and we'll admire our unshakable Lord Jesus. Now, this is what we see consistently throughout Scripture, that our God is sovereign over all, that the evil one is powerful and does successfully lead us all astray. But ultimately, we trust in our unshakable Lord Jesus. So that's where we'll sit today. We'll look at our God's sovereignty, how Satan tempts, and then we'll admire our unshakable Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we devote this time now to you. We thank you for uh, the reading of your word. Uh, we pray that we would be, uh, that our hearts would be quiet, um, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open to how uh, you want your word to speak to us today. We thank you for your son Jesus, uh, for uh, his accomplishment over death. Uh, we thank you for the life that he lived, the example that he set, uh, but ultimately, Heavenly Father, we remember uh, that he is our saviour, that he, he took our punishment, that he was hung on a cross for our sins. So God, we give you all glory and honour and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of chapter 3, we read of the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. It's here that we read that he was about 30 years old, and so that's another considerable jump in the Gospel of Luke. Remember last time we looked at the life of Jesus, he was 12 years old in the temple, impressing the, the scholars of the day. And then last week, Gary reflected on, on the life of John the Baptist. Uh, and then we read uh, at the end of chapter 3 of Jesus being baptised. And then in verse 22 of chapter 3, we read, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you, I am well pleased. We then, of course, have the genealogy of Jesus, which I strongly considered getting John to read for us 
this morning, but I thought that would be far too cruel. After the genealogy of Jesus, we arrive at our passage for today, where we read of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he would face temptation for 40 days, eating nothing and experiencing great hunger. And it's here that I I just want to stop for a second and consider the truth we see here and consistently throughout Jesus, uh, throughout the scriptures of God's sovereignty, that, that Jesus didn't wander off course and accidentally find himself in the wilderness for 40 days. It wasn't God's great desire that Jesus would remain, uh, that Jesus would remain with his family, happily preparing for his ministry. And then the evil one is just so powerful that he pulls Jesus out of God's will and proceeds to put Jesus through the ringer. No. And so often we read of God acting and working in accordance to his will, but it doesn't align with the cookie-cutter God that we have created in our minds. And so we believe that God is perhaps absent or that he doesn't care or that he really does care, but he is powerless in the face of evil. And I've got to say, I do not believe that. I don't think you should either. I don't believe that every time we see something terrible happening in the scriptures or every time we experience terrible things in this life, that God is sitting on the sidelines wishing he could intervene, but unable to. And you know where we see this in the scriptures? Everywhere. Do do you think that God was surprised when the serpent tempted Eve in the garden? Who sent the great flood to wipe out all of humanity, sparing just a boatload? Who sent Abraham up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, Isaac? Have you read Job? Satan, do what you will to to my servant Job. Spare only his life. Do you think Paul and Peter and all the other disciples were stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned and hung outside of God's will? And now consider your own life. Every second of pain and affliction that you have experienced, has that occurred outside of God's will for your life? How many times have you chatted with people who have gone through some truly terrible experiences? And at the time, I can imagine them pleading with God quite rightly God, why are you absent? Why won't you intervene? And yet, five years, ten years, twenty years, down the track, when hindsight has truly kicked in, what will they tell you? Wow, God wasn't absent. God was powerfully at work in that affliction. He was producing in me maybe an awareness or a compassion or a wisdom. And I now know why he put me through this. In 2 Corinthians 4, now, if you want to devote some time this week into scripture that, that speaks directly into this kind of area, 2 Corinthians 4 is where I'd send you. Let me read a few verses. Starting at uh, verse 15, it says, For it is all for his sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Therefore, do not lose heart. And I think what 2 Corinthians 4 captures so brilliantly is that 
It is all for God's own glory. That first and foremost, God is for his glory. Therefore, the posture of our hearts should be, God, use me for your glory. Would you use me for your glory? May your kingdom come. May your will be done in my life. You see, I think we often say this. Use me for your glory, God. But what we're really asking is glorify me for your glory. And we're never told in Scripture that our lives will be easy for God's glory. And so we should know that when we experience affliction in this life, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we know that God is working for his glory. If you have put your trust in Jesus and you experience a time of pain and hardship, don't think God is absent. Don't think it's all meaningless. Don't think that God is sitting on the sidelines and twiddling his thumbs because he's not. He is working for his glory. So what does Paul say? I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings. Jesus knew this, didn't he? As he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, he knew that this was for his Father's glory. That his Father wasn't absent, that his Father wasn't powerless, and so he willingly went. And now for us, we're given this incredible insight into the schemes and methods of the evil one as he tempts Jesus. So that's the second thing we're going to reflect on. We've looked at our God's sovereignty. Now we're going to look at how Satan tempts. I used to play rugby league. And this one time in probably under 10s, to my shame, I punched someone in the guts in a tackle. I can't remember exactly why I did it. He must have done something to me earlier, but the fact that I don't remember it probably means that it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, But as you can imagine, this guy, who was quite a bit bigger than me, he jumped up and he was furious. And he starts swinging at me. And I'm backing up because I'm this little 5'8". And uh, he's swinging at me and a guy from my team runs in and tackles this guy. And then suddenly you've got all of these 10-year-olds running in for a brawl. A full-on brawl broke out and... uh, there was a lot of this and not a lot of this. So no one was really hurt, as you can picture. Uh, but the, the refs came in and, and a couple of the parents came in and broke it all up. But the guy that got up and started throwing punches at me, he got in a lot of trouble. He was banned for three games. Um, he had to go before the kind of judiciary, which I don't really know what that looks like for a 10-year-old. Um, the guy from my team that came in and, and backed me up and tackled this guy, he also got in a lot of trouble. He, uh, he also was banned for three games. And I realised no one knew that I'd started this fight. I was the only person in the entire world that knew that I had started this fight. And I truly started this fight. I absolutely clobbered him in the guts. And um, cute 10-year-old Jordan was so overcome with guilt that I uh, experienced probably a week of, of crying myself to sleep each night. I wish that I had the integrity to stand up in the moment and say, no, 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 this was me. I started this. Don't punish these guys. It was me, but I didn't. And so I spent the next week crying in my, in my bed as I fell asleep. And on the uh, kind of, I don't know, fifth, sixth or seventh night, my mum came in to check on me and she found me crying. She said, Joel, what's going on? And I told her the whole story. It was, it was hard to tell her the whole story. And um, 
And I kind of, I, uh, mum then had this in, incredibly memorable conversation with me about sin, about confessing our sin, about repentance. Uh, she told me that um, God actually forgives me. This is why he sent his son for sin. Um, she told me that her and dad forgive me, which, which made me cry even more. Um, and, and we kind of went through the process of, you know, talking to the coach and talking to my team, and I did get in a bit of trouble. Um, but in it all, um, I experienced for the first time the great temptation that we all do experience. For that whole week, no one knows what you've done, mate. Keep your mouth shut. You've gotten away with it. No one knows that you punched this guy. The evil one tempted me for an entire week and, and by the grace of God, I was able to confess that sin. My mum told me, I remember, um, she told me that this, this conscience that I have of when I've done the wrong thing is a gift from God that, that I'm sure all of us have. This gift of knowing that's wrong. God's not happy with that. That's a gift from God. I totally agree. Now, I want you to consider temptation in your own lives for a moment. Now, it's important to remember that, that Satan is incredibly crafty. There's not a one-size-fits-all method that he utilises for temptation. But all temptation seeks to draw our focus away from God. Sin is not firstly what we do to others. Sin is always first, firstly blasphemy against God. We sometimes think that sin is just, you know, when we treat someone badly, but it's not. It's always firstly blasphemy against God. And so there are these truths that we know about God, that he is good, that he is loving, that he is sovereign, that he is the creator of the universe, that he is the alpha and the omega, that he sent his son to be our savior, that he is forgiving, that he is gracious that he is merciful, that he is our father and we are his children, that he is glorious. He is worthy of our praise and temptation from the evil one always seeks to distract us and draw our attention away from who God is, what he has done and how he has called us to live. Verse 3 of Luke 4 we read, The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, remember when I said the evil one is crafty. He is, he is abundantly aware of the hardships you were going through. He was totally aware that if you don't eat for 40 days, you're going to be absolutely famished, right? Satan also knew that Jesus was the son of God. He knew of his authority over the natural world. He knew of his ability to perform the miraculous. And I suggest he probably expected that, that Jesus wanted to prove himself, prove that he is the son of God, the evil one is crafty. He knows exactly what you're going through and will leverage that so that it becomes a stumbling block. I'm sure we can all think of times in our life when we have experienced temptation from the evil one and it just so happens that you were going through a tough time at work or your kids were unwell or your spouse is having to stay late at work and so you never see them. I've shared here before that when Jess and I made the decision to move to DAPTO, that's when, at least for me, Satan did whatever he could to gain a foothold. You'll never see your family, Jordan. Joey won't know his cousins. All those people at DAPTO will be horrible to you. 
Now, God, by his grace, didn't allow Satan to gain a foothold. We made the move, and now I know that it was all lies, absolute lies, that Satan was feeding me. The evil one is crafty. He knows exactly what you're going through, and he will leverage that. Verses 5 to 7. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And so we know that the evil one is crafty. And now we see that he is an absolute liar. He feeds us lies and then expects that we will forget our scriptures, forget our God and believe and believe him. How many times have we been fed lies from the evil one and then we believe them? I feel like a common one is that person is so angry at you. They've never forgiven you for that little thing you did. Or no one likes you. They all just think you're annoying and wish you weren't around. What about lies about God? He doesn't love you. He forgives everyone else when they sin, but you, he'll never forgive you. There's not enough forgiveness for you. Absolute lies about our God. I think the lie that Satan fed Jesus is a lie he gives us all the time. I will give you all authority and splendor. I will give you whatever you want. That job, that girl, that house, that trip around the world. I can give it all to you if you would just worship me. And you can't worship God if you're busy worshipping me. So forget about God. Worship money, worship success, worship possessions, worship women, worship men. Whatever you do, don't worship God. Worship me. The evil one is crafty and he is an absolute liar. Verses 9 to 11. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. How else does Satan tempt? Well, what we see here is he knows and he twists the scriptures. And I think ultimately he is attempting to discredit God's word. He attempts to make us doubt God's word. He takes what is deeply complex in the scriptures. He highlights it and says, see, this is why you can't trust God. Satan quotes directly from Psalm 91 here. He twists the scriptures and says, if you believe the words of the psalmist, you should throw yourself down from the roof of the temple and just trust that you'll be fine. I I think Satan does this today by saying, you are a wretched sinner. You can't go a second without sinning. You have not for one second loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, or with all your mind. Not for one second. You are totally dead in your transgressions and sins. Satan says this to us, and we say, yeah, you're right. And he is right. We read that in the scriptures. And then he says, so why even resist? You resist today. You'll fail tomorrow, so why resist today? God loves you, doesn't he? 
Doesn't his word say that his grace is sufficient? Don't you think you're being a bit too righteous if you resist all these sins? He twists the scriptures. He tempts us by reminding us of God's love for us. He tempts us by reminding us of God's love for us. God loves us. His forgiveness for us is immeasurable. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient. Therefore, why do I need to stop sinning? I'm just going to neglect God for a few years, have some fun, do what I want, live how I want to live, and then I'll come back to Jesus. And he'll forgive me. Man, I've read the prodigal son. I'll come back. My father will run down the path. He'll give me a massive hug. You know what? I'll even get a banquet. So I'm going to go do what I want for a couple of years. And when we believe this, we drive a nail into Jesus' hands, don't we? And we make his death on the cross, the punishment he endured for us, we make it a small deal, and it's not a small deal. See, I believe our knowledge of Christ's death on the cross, our understanding of the truth that he who knew no sin paid the full cost of sin, that should serve as our greatest motivation to resist sin. That should serve as our greatest motivation to resist sin, shouldn't it? Like, don't resist sin because it will get you into heaven. I've said before, I actually don't think that if you just resist sin, you'll get into heaven. Resist sin because it sent your Lord Jesus to the cross and he didn't deserve to go to the cross, did he? So that's three ways that Satan tempts us. He is crafty. He is a liar. And he twists God's word. I don't think these are the only ways that Satan tempts us. I'd say maybe these are the primary ways. These are the tools he used to tempt the Son of God. And so, of course, he's using these on us, doing whatever he can to draw our focus away from God. Away from God, who he is, what he's done, and how he's called us to live. I want to conclude this message today admiring our unshakable Lord Jesus. And I do believe that there is some great wisdom we can gain in reflecting on Jesus' method for dealing with temptation and seeking to live that out in our own lives. And the simple and probably obvious takeaway for us is know the scriptures. Know God's word. Be so devoted to God's word that every day you are being instructed by it. That every day you are memorizing it. So that when the evil one comes to tempt, and he will, and he has, you can stand firm and declare, it is written. Right? It is written. My, God, my God's word says, man shall not live on bread alone. So I'm not swayed by your craftiness, Satan. Despite how hungry I am, God's word says man shall not live on bread alone. God's word says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So no, I won't worship you, Satan. Even if I don't gain all authority and splendor, even if you don't give me everything that I could ever want, I will worship my God only. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So I don't care how you twist these scriptures. I will not test my God. No, I will trust my God. 
So that's an obvious takeaway. Know the scriptures. Memorize the scriptures. Follow Christ's example for dealing with temptation and combat temptation from the evil one with God's word. I also think it is so important to simply admire the work of our Lord Jesus in overcoming evil. His death on the cross in our place should always be what we come back to, shouldn't it? Because while I do believe that only he could be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and stand firm, it is not this event which makes him our Lord and Saviour. We read a few weeks back when we reflected on Jesus' birth, to you a Saviour is born. But he's not our Saviour just because he resisted sin. He's not our Saviour just because he knew the Scriptures. Not just because he lived a perfect life. He's our Saviour because he lived a perfect life and then took our place on that cross. He didn't deserve to die. He was completely innocent and yet he willingly went to the cross and was crucified so that all who would put their trust in him can receive eternal life. As I look around this room, I rejoice in the fact that we are a fellowship of believers, that we have heard the gospel, that by God's grace, he has made us aware of our sin, that he has revealed the reality of our lives lived in darkness, that we have then accepted our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. We have deeply understood by the work of the Spirit the truth of the gospel, that by grace we have been saved. Therefore, when we are put through times of testing and trial and hardship by our sovereign God, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that he is working for his glory. God is working for his glory. When we experience temptation from the evil one, we resist because we know that our sin nails Christ to the cross. And as we admire our unshakable Lord Jesus, we remember his perfect, sinless life, which he freely gave to pay the debt of our sin that we may receive eternal life. You with me? Amen. Let me pray. Our great God, we are so moved by the life of your son, Jesus, so compelled by Uh, his ability to resist sin, Um, so inspired by his knowledge of the scriptures. But Heavenly Father, we are so moved by the grace you displayed when you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross. We know that he deserved uh, to to be glorified and esteemed, but instead he was despised and rejected. Heavenly Father, I pray for every single church that is meeting at the moment around the world, I pray that the gospel would be boldly declared. That that we all who are dead in our transgressions and sins have been gifted grace by our Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray for strength and wisdom in how to deal with with the evil one, with his schemes and methods. Father God, I pray that we would be aware of how he attempts to distract us from you. And then, Heavenly Father, would we be strong in knowing the scriptures, in using them to combat temptation? But also, Heavenly Father, that we would trust in the work of your son, Jesus, that he has overcome evil. We can't overcome evil. He has overcome evil for us. 
And so, Heavenly Father, we give you all glory and praise because you are so worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.